Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is, of course, Bank Holiday Monday, which for me is just like every other Monday, an opportunity to do what I like doing best, and that is talking to all of you and listening to all of the interesting things you have to tell me. And this morning will be no different. We awoke to another month stuck in the rut of lockdown, of course, but with a few pieces of good cheer to buoy us up and to feel optimistic about the future. After all, they can't keep us indoors forever, can they? Thousands of people were out celebrating the weekend, from Newcastle to Newquay, from Leeds to London, from Liverpool to Land's End. Let us know what you were up to, what you saw, what you did and what you were being told. There were thousands of people in a nightclub. There were thousands of people uh, at a music festival. There were, of course, some bad things that happened as well. On the downside, some football fans invaded Old Trafford in Manchester and managed to get a game cancelled. Congratulations. Well done. Absolutely brilliant. Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab refused to confirm that all lockdown restrictions will be lifted on June the 21st and it could be uh, that we might all be supposedly going to wear masks for the rest of time. Well, I don't think so, Dominic. I don't think I'm going to be wearing a mask after that, uh, even if you want me to. It's as simple as that. There is no reason why, if there is no COVID, which there doesn't appear to be at the moment, why we should all be wearing masks all over the place. What is the point? Gary Lineker managed to break his own Twitter ban against racism because he was one of those joining in on the four-day I'm not tweeting anything because it will stop racism in football. Yeah, right, it will. And Boris Johnson, of course, continues his wall of silence over Carrie Antoinette Gate. We're kicking off today with Dr. Rakiba San on the latest developments in the wake of the Sewell report on racial disparity. He'll be telling us why it's family foundations that count more than anything else and that includes skin colour and also be telling us just why Labour is incapable of capitalising on a bad week for the government. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on we're joined by Peter Hitchens, man on Sunday columnist of course. He's got plenty to say on why he doesn't care about the soft furnishings in Downing Street but why he does care about the normalisation of our freedoms being taken away. He's got some other interesting things to say as well. We'll also be asking the Suns TV columnist Ali Ross just what on earth that line of duty finale was all about last night. Did you understand any of it? Because I certainly didn't. I was watching it. Uh, I've watched it kind of under duress, I'd have to say, over the course of the last few weeks. And I really don't know what it's for, what the point of it is. And it left me feeling what can only be described as sort of edgy, a little bit edgy. 
I don't know what was going on. 03444991000. Plus, Paul Charles is here, having just returned from a travel industry conference in Mexico uh, with the latest news on where we can go and what's likely to be the opportunity to go anywhere later this month. We'll also find out from him how long it took him to get through immigration uh, coming into an airport in this country. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, for some people, bank holiday uh, weekends are for going to the beach, hanging out uh, in the cars, eating ice cream, taking the dog for a walk. You know, I'm back at work here because, for me, Monday is Monday. It doesn't really matter if it's a bank holiday or not. In fact, I don't even really know why we have bank holidays. What do we have bank holidays for? What are they for? Can you please tell me? Because, what, so the bank can have a day off? So the bank doesn't do any business? So the bank can actually have a nice four-day week. I don't understand why. May Day is meant to be some kind of celebration uh, of unions, right? Some celebration of the working man and woman. Uh, All it seems to happen in the rest of Europe is people have riots uh, to celebrate May Day uh, and get smashed around on the head by police with truncheons. I don't know why we have a May Day bank holiday. Can anybody tell me? I'll tell you what, that'll be the first question I put to Dr. Rakiba San, independent expert in British public attitudes, a man that comes on this show on a regular basis, a man who talks a great deal of sense about a great many things. Dr. Rakiba, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. What is the point of a May bank holiday, by the way? Oh, Mike, I'm past caring. People have asked me in the past. <laughs> all I say is, you know, idle hands are the devil's workshop, so I just work every day. And I think you like that spirit as well, to be honest. That we have that in common. Yes, I do. I mean, absolutely right. Because at the end of the day, uh, we, we live now in a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week society. We expect mm. to be able to access all the things that we want, including television, including music, uh, including our friends, pretty much all the time, any time we want to talk to them. Why should we not be able to go into a, a shop on a Monday morning? Because apparently they're all having a day off. Well, I, I think for me, Mike, I, I, I'm someone... I, I, it's, it's a very fast-changing um, atmosphere. There's all kinds of things going on. And ultimately, I feel that, as you know, with kind of topics that I write about, that, you know, things can change uh, very quickly. And I have to respond to that. I almost feel like because that is ultimately my specialism, I have a duty to respond to that yeah. irrespective of what day it is. Yeah, absolutely right. And you've been a very busy man this uh, this year, particularly, Rakeem, because there's so much going on. Uh, the Sill Report that we talked about mm. a couple of times already, you wrote a big piece uh, just recently this weekend for the Sunday Guardian, which I think is an Indian newspaper, uh, Indeed, about yes. that race report and about uh, some interesting conclusions. Because now that the dust has all settled and mm. everybody's calmed down a bit, you know, we can actually kind of analyse what it said with a bit more kind of calm um, uh, assurity, can't we? No, absolutely. And I think that you know topics relating to racism, they are admittedly sensitive, which is why it's especially important to approach them in a level-headed and mature manner. Unfortunately, Mike, uh, as you saw, many of the reactions to the report did not fall into that territory at all. Mm. In fact, I thought it was it, fe- it very much fell firmly into hysterical territory, and much of it was racially motivated abuse towards the report authors themselves. Yes. So the the piece that I authored for the Sunday Guardian, which is a weekly Indian newspaper, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to write for them. It it was basically looking at what are the key points of disadvantage in Britain? And something that we've discussed many times before, I do feel there are organisations, journalists and academics who they deliberately place race 
at the forefront of these discussions of yes. disadvantage. It might be because they're emotionally invested in peddling a particular interpretation of Britain, which isn't rooted in reality. Or it could even be the case they're actually financially invested mm. um, in, in, in doing so. Because the reality of the matter is, for all its flaws, Britain is a successful multiracial democracy. There's a wealth of survey data which suggests that. You yes. see high levels of patriotism among ethnic minority non-white groups. There's also high levels of political trust uh, on the whole. And in fact, recent res research that I conducted showed that when compared to white people, non-white people are more satisfied with their life. Mm. Yeah, it's in interesting, Britain. isn't it? I mean, a beacon of hope, you might even say, as the Sill report actually said that mm. Britain was for a lot of other Western democracies. Because you look, go and see what's going on in France today, in Spain, mm. uh, if you go to Italy, if you go to pretty much any southern Mediterranean country, even Greece, I would suspect, is the same. There's an awful lot of racism there uh, compared to what there is here. I, I couldn't agree more. So if we talk about France, for example, the... the the military generals submitting a letter which essentially suggested that a military intervention on French soil might mm. be the best way forward to tackle Islamism. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that was an extraordinary story. And we covered that last week because I saw that and I thought, this is a big story. And very few people recognised that it was. Absolutely remarkable. And what was remarkable, Mike, was that it commanded a great deal of public support the sentiments of the letter yeah. and then when you know, that that's going on across the channel when mm. you look across the atlantic you see the degree of po political polarization mm. there in the united states bitterly racially divided britain for all its flaws is fairly well positioned what i say is we should guard against complacency see where there are weak points when it comes to how people interact with the state yeah. uh, especially uh, police forces how we can create a more uh, create a more stable democracy, but also a democratic system that people can relate to more. I feel that all too often when we look at our political system, there's too many decisions taken at the centre. So it should be talking about spreading uh, decision-making processes into local communities, because ultimately they're better positioned to make decisions for their own communities. They have that specialist local knowledge. Mm. I think all too often they're made, uh, their decisions are made at a relatively weak um, centre in London. So I think that those are the kind of discussions we should have. But in terms of the race debate, I'm generally of the view that Britain is a relatively successful... Uh, well, it is. I mean, one of the things that you point out in the piece that you wrote at the weekend is that mm. we have an, an awful lot of mixed race people in this country, Indeed. Uh, which you don't see an awful lot of, actually, uh, in the United States. I mean, I lived there for 10 years and I, I know the place pretty well. What you have in America is a whole section of parts of the city, of any part of the, any city, uh, which are basically ghettos, where only certain communities live. So black people all live in certain communities. Of course, there are some exceptions, but not, not many. You know, you go to Chicago, uh, the south side of Chicago is very much where black people who are not very well off live. You go to New York City, uh, mostly people uh, of, of, uh, of ethnic minority origin live outside of Manhattan. You know, you go to Cal California, look at San Francisco, look at Los Angeles. You know, you have areas, South Central LA, uh, almost entirely a black neighbourhood. You know, we don't have that here. Well, I, I think that when we're looking at the United States, I almost feel like we're, the United States is sleepwalking back into segregation. Yeah. In some ways, it's quite remarkable. I've even seen people suggest that graduation ceremonies should be divided up into different racial groups. Yeah, amazing, which isn't is it? 
absolutely. But this is where this is where the sort of the circular fiery squad of leftism gets you, Mm. doesn't it? Because in the end, they're all actually eating each other, as we've seen. Where you get, for example, the nomination uh, of the first woman of colour to win an Oscar. She's described as a woman of colour, but she's actually ethnically Chinese. Now, I don't know when people from China became women of colour. Well, I, I think that with the United States, what you see is people talking about diversity and inclusion. But in reality, they're supporting forms of segregation. Yeah. That's what it boils down to. And I, I do see some of those trends emerging within the British contemporary left as well. Yes. There's not much discussion about improving relations between different communities, how we can boost social trust in British society. A lot of the su- suggestions are sun- uh, fundamentally segre- uh, segregationist. I think we saw that with some of the comments made by the BBC's diversity chief over the programme Luther, where she said that he wasn't authentically yeah. black enough because he didn't have enough black friends. Well, and also because he didn't, I mean, even more ludicrously, that he didn't eat Caribbean food. And you're kind of going, what? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Why should you have to eat Caribbean food just because you're black? It's absolutely remarkable. So what you see there, there's ultimately, they're almost developing an identitarian framework which determines one's racial authenticity, depending on who they're friends with, what their eating habits are, and what their general lifestyle is. And that's the kind of thing that I really don't want to see in Britain. And I'll tell you what, Mike, it's certainly something I don't want to see in the BBC. No, absolutely right. Let's also talk a little bit about this um, anti-racism campaign that's currently going Mm. on in football. You know, uh, let's all make a stand. Let's not tweet for four days. I mean, really? You think that's really going to make a difference? But there is no doubt that an awful lot of footballers are now getting more abuse than they were getting just 10 years ago. Why do you think that is? I think that social media, in some ways, it, it, it can become an absolute cesspit. Mm. There, there's no two ways about it. It doesn't take it, long, does it? No, and I think that, that it, what was really good about the Sewell report, it did actually talk about the degree of racially motivated abuse which is taking place mm. on social media now. And I do think that there should be there should be greater action taken by those social media platforms in terms of rooting out that form, the, 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 those forms of racism. Yes. I think that football itself, I, th- I think what you see in football, which you see in other sectors, is you see these gestures, whether it's taking a knee, um, going off social media for a few days, mm. uh, ta- uh, undertaking unconscious bias training. Mm. But people think they do these things and that their job is done when it comes to fighting racism. It's a very, it, it, it's a cop out, Mike, if, if truth be told. Yeah, it's a bit like, because when you say to the Premier League, what did you do about fighting racism? Oh, well, we didn't go on Twitter for four days. Great. Well done. Congratulations. How did that go for you? Absolutely. And I (laughs) I think you see that you see that trend in society where you see people, you know, indulging in these gestures and thinking that, oh, you know, I've done my bit now. So, but I think when you're looking at the anti-racism movement more broadly in Britain, as as we've talked about, Mike, Mm. We really need to talk about how we can find common ground in terms of fighting these ills in society. We're talking about, you know, I've even heard things within the anti-racism movement, people suggesting that white people shouldn't even be participate in discussions on matters of race, which is just absolutely remarkable. Mm, mm. So I think that kind of behavior needs to be rooted out of the anti-racism movement. Because ultimately, if you want to build a fairer, more cohesive society, 
people or people of all different um, ethnic and racial backgrounds need to be part of those discussions. Yes. But also, Rakeem, apart from the sort of grifters of the world who reuse race as a way of making mm. money and who are in the race industry, because we both know that that's what there is out there. Most people, uh, whether they be white, whether they be uh, minority ethnic, white, whether they be from India, Bangladesh, uh, Jamaica, mm. you know, they're all actually a bit too busy getting on with their lives and making money and trying to make a better life for their kids than they are uh, trying to make sure that, you know, somebody isn't li being listened to or somebody isn't being talked to. No, I, I, absolutely. I, I think that racial identity politics in itself, it's an enterprise where <laughs> it doesn't... Re many people in ethnic minority communities d don't relate to it. They absolutely don't. Mm. And I think that ultimately you have these identitarian leftist activists which have, which have, they exercise a great deal of power and influence within the Labour Party. Yeah, it's either the fact that they don't know their own ethnic minority communities very well in terms of the traditional values they hold, their high levels of democratic satisfaction, relatively high levels of trust in public institutions, including the police. It's either they don't know about it or they do know about it, but they're brushing it under the carpet yes. because they want to push forward their own politically motivated agenda, which would, which the cynic in me suggests that that might well be a possibility. So I think that that, that is much of Labour's problem mm. where there's a mismatch between how they view the country and how traditional Labour voting communities view the country. There's a real detachment between the two. Yeah. And I think that's perhaps why Labour is still struggling, even though you, you talked about earlier about, about the government's woes. That is why in most of the polls, Labour continue to be marked well behind the Conservative Party. Well, they do. And they've also kind of uh, sort of nailed their, their, their colours to the mast uh, of ethnic minority communities, which uh, I'm sure those communities don't necessarily thank them for. I mean, we saw over the course of the weekend um, uh, the ridiculous spectacle of a Christian preacher being arrested Aww. in Uxbridge for, for for preaching. Now, I haven't seen, like, like all of these situations, I haven't seen a whole video of it. I've seen a video of him being arrested, which seems ridiculous. I don't know what he said that caused uh, them to think that he had committed some kind of hate crime. But regardless of, of what he said, I can't imagine it could have been terrible what he what he would have might have said. Um, you know, why are we arresting this guy? Mike, I have a great deal of respect for our police forces on the whole. The, the vast majority of British police officers, they prioritise safety and security in local communities. But I do feel there have been certain incidents over the course of the pandemic, there has been a case of over-policing. I, I don't think that police forces can avoid that and they need to address that because the incident that you're referring to that was a clear case of police overreach yes i, I, think, I don't know question think most people most people who are pro-police would probably even be of that view yeah absolutely right now let's let's talk about labor in a broader way as well because you know you would have thought last week given what was going on uh, around the old curtain gate and you know carrie antoinette and the whole story of <laughs> boris johnson which which i still say is the most ridiculous story that he has managed to get himself involved in over the course of his uh, his time both mm. as mayor of london and as prime minister you know what i what I, people say to me it's not a story well it is a story because he keeps making it a story by not revealing who it was that gave him the money but despite all of the stuff that went on despite prime minister's mm. questions you know poor old Keir Starmer manages to become even more unpopular in the course <laughs> of that week how does that work oh uh, I, I think 
that particular situation, I, I, to my understanding, the electoral commissioner investigated yeah. the funding behind it, the, the refurbishment at 10 Downing Street. What I take issue is that Labour are making it the heart and centre, you know, just before these elections. It, the, ultimately, the biggest argument, well, the biggest criticism that I've had of Labour in recent times is that they refuse to focus on the bread and butter. Okay, criticise the Prime Minister, let the Electoral Commission get on with their investigation. But what people, what I feel that traditional former Labour voters would like to hear about is how Labour, for example, what kind of policies would they have to help small to medium-sized businesses rebuild? Mm after the pandemic. Never mind that. You had Sir Keir Starmer. You saw him there arguing with the pub landlord um, a few weeks ago, Rod Humphreys, and he ended that exchange by saying, I don't need to take lectures from you yes. over the pandemic. <laughs> People might want to also hear about, yeah, how can we strengthen workers' rights mm. in post-pandemic Britain? How do we boost skills in post-Brexit Britain? How can we expand the supply of affordable housing in many parts of Britain? Those are the kind of another one would be the the waiting lists we have for the National Health Service, which have developed over the course of the pandemic. Those are the kind of bread and butter issues which I feel many voters in the British electorate would be quite keen to hear about. Mm. So, okay, criticise the Prime Minister, that's fine. But this this story of the uh, just flat uh, the number ten refurbishment, I think Labour have given it a disproportionate amount of attention. Yes, but also they've kind of trivialised it in their own way as well. So while they've had the opportunity to to nail. Uh, mm. Boris Johnson over it. They've sort of missed the goal again. You know, they've they've they've, they've fired it wide as they always they're do. Good at that, aren't they? And they're really good. You know, because instead of keeping the pressure on, poor old Keir Starmer gets uh, gets told, "Here's a good idea. Get down to John Lewis and have let's take a picture of you buying oh. some wallpaper," which completely then trivialised what they were trying to tell us was a massive scandal. It, it, the th- the thing with Sir Keir, he confuses me a bit because he ultimately wants to provide this image of being you know, mature statesman-like, forensic, meticulous. But increasingly, I'm seeing very little of that from Sir Keir Starmer. Now, yeah. he might have some very poor advisors. Um, that, that may be a genuine possibility. Yeah, I think that's but probably true. Judging by some of the Labour Party advisors that appear on talk radio, you know, former Corbyn advisor this, you know, former John McDonnell advisor that, mm. you know, there are massive planks, I'm afraid. Um, and it's no, no surprise that, uh, you know, they weren't able to advise their particular uh, master how to, how to succeed in politics. Mm. I, I think when we're looking at the Conservative government, I would have to say there are serious questions to be asked in terms of you know how competent the government is mm. um, in a number of public policy areas. The, the, the problem that Labour has is that it's not very good at you know keeping the government to account. Mm. I think that is one of its biggest problems. Yeah. I think Sakir personally, he's tried to fashion a brand which it, it, it's, it's not it's, it, it's not coming to the fore at all. No. And I, I do feel that much of the advice he's given is probably um, very poor. And I'll be very interested to see the results of the upcoming elections. I fear that it may not be too good for Labour. No, I think you may well be right. Dr. Rakeem Bassan, a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Independent expert in British public attitudes. Always got fascinating things to say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. And now it is Monday and it is a bank holiday Monday, but that doesn't stop Peter Hitchens from talking to us. Peter, very good morning to you. Morning. Um, what would you say May Day is all about? Because I've been asking that question this morning. I've, I've yet to find a suitable answer. Well, it did used to be the International Festival of Labour. Yeah. Uh, 
I think that's one of the reasons why Michael Foote, when he was employment secretary, brought it in. Yeah. Uh, in the Labour government of the early 1970s. Uh, but it was never a particularly big deal in this country. What we also had was ridiculous maypole ceremonies and people skipping oh, across yeah. roads around. That also seems to me to have been largely, uh, largely obsolete by then. It's a weird business. The whole, the whole thing about bank holidays, now that people have a statutory lengthy paid holidays mm. every year, is a bit archaic in my view. And I, I've never much enjoyed them because they always happen on... Mondays and turn out to be an extended Sunday, but without without the laughs. Yes, exactly. Uh, I, exactly I, right. I really don't get it. So I, I, here I am speaking to you today from the offices of the Mail on Sunday, as I would on any. Yes. Any- well, this is the same for me. I mean, people always ask me, oh, "Will you be working on Bank Holiday Monday?" And I always go, "Well, of course I will." You know, why wouldn't I? But the thing is, it's funny because I used to work in Scotland, and up there they still celebrate something called Glasgow Fair. Uh, which was basically intended as a week off for the people that worked in the shipyards and the factories and all of that, where they'd all sort of toodle off down to Blackpool for the week. But they still have it. And it seems to me to be, as you say, very archaic, really. Well, it is. It predates the the, the introduction of of paid holidays on a large scale. And no no one's ever going to take it away, because once you've given a a concession of a day off, it's very, very hard to take it away. Mm. So we're stuck with it. The only public holiday I've ever enjoyed is when I was living in the USA was, was Thanksgiving, which yes. falls on a Thursday, and therefore has a wholly different atmosphere from a Monday bank holiday. Mm. And I thought it was rather fun. I've always thought we should institute one of our one of our own yes. uh, round about Winston Churchill's birthday, uh, but uh, preferably on the nearest Thursday to it. That I would like, but, but Monday's off. I, they just leave me uh, cold, I'm yes. afraid. No, I know what you mean. Although, sadly, the Thanksgiving holiday has also brought us the dreaded Black Friday, which we've now uh, appropriated, which means that everybody rushes out uh, and sort of clambers over one another to buy plates for for half price. Why is it Black Friday? I mean, Black Friday used to refer to days on which terrible things happen. I know. I know. Why is it black? I don't understand it. It's, it's, well, I think that I think that I think I think that comes from the American uh, actual signalling of something which is on sale, which literally had a sort of a black label put on it if it was on sale, and I think that's what it comes from. Well, it sounds very odd to me, but we do seem to adopt without thought an awful lot of American mm. expressions. Yes. Well, I'll tell you one one thing I wish we would adopt, because I was talking to my sister in Connecticut uh, last night, uh, is their attitude on masks, which have now been more or less done away with. The mask mandate, as it's called in America, uh, has been done away with in in almost every state. So therefore, uh, they say quite reasonably, if you want to wear one, go ahead. But if you don't want to wear one, that's also fine. Well, it would be good, wouldn't it? But of course, the the whole argument about masks has never been held on a rational level. It's always an emotional thing and any attempt to, to actually bring in reason and fact into the discussion is, is, is met with mm. cries of rage. It's still the most amazing fact that the only serious uh, randomised controlled trial of the effectiveness of mask wearing ever undertaken in, in Denmark earlier on this year, the results of it have not appeared uh, on in most British newspapers, exception of my own, mm. uh, nor have they appeared on the BBC. Nobody knows what it is, and when it, when it is referred to obliquely, are various things about it a claim which, in my view, are yeah. how should I put this politely questionable? Because at the moment people start thinking about this, and the, the whole British government attitude to it, which I quoted lengthily at the time, was that there really isn't much evidence for the usefulness of these things, but it's an emotional thing, and it's yeah. also it's also a measure of control. If you can get millions of people to go around wearing bits of cloth over their faces. Uh, was to cancelling their own identity 
uh, and promote the level of fear which, uh, which, which makes this appear sensible, then you've got an extraordinarily high control over the society mm. which you govern, and one which is, I, I would once have thought people in this country would reject, but it continues. And I think if, even if an attempt is made to stop it, and say, for instance, they reopen the cinemas, and they say, well, actually, you don't need to wear a mask in mm. the cinema. If you go to the cinema, particularly for a film that's got a lot of people watching it, without a mask, I think you'd probably find that uh, other members of the audience will turn on you and say, why aren't you wearing mm. a mask? It might possibly urge, urge you to leave the auditorium. I, I really do think that this has now taken root in our society and it will be very, very hard to get rid of. Yes, it's an interesting point because one of the things that nobody really ever questions, and I have questioned in the past, is that if mask wearing prevents the spread of COVID, how come January happened? Because we were wearing masks in January. We were wearing masks in December. You know, they brought mask wearing in as a compulsory thing, uh, I think, back in the sort of late summer. And so clearly um, the wearing of masks either doesn't work in stopping the spread of COVID or uh, the spread of COVID was happening in places where people were not wearing masks. But what we I mean, know... You're doing, you're doing it again. You're applying reason to dogma. The answer <laughs> to that, of course, if, if we hadn't been wearing masks, it would have been even worse. Oh, of course, yes. Ah, there that, we are. That, Everything there is an answer to everything in dogma. You're, you're, you're never wrong, mm. and so what, however, however sensible the audience you, you, you come up with, and you think, well, this will really fox them. Uh, they really won't have it. They always do have an answer because it's a completely circular system. Yes, and it comes back to the same thing. This was the, the, the lockdown was right and justified. Mask wearing was correct. The whole the, the whole spread of fear and panic. Uh, was a good thing, and we would have been much worse off without it. And, and that's that's the end of it. And mm. if an inquiry ever is held, I'm terribly sorry to inform you, that is the outcome that will follow. It's as if the Iraq war uh, had happened, and the inquiry after it said it was a triumph. Uh, that's, that is the, the nature of the manipulation of public opinion. It's in, actually in an interesting point you make there, because I, I'd forgotten, actually, that one of the things that Tony Blair uh, always said was, well, what would have, would have happened if we hadn't gone in? Yes. And you go, well, I don't know. What, what do you think would have happened? Well, he, of course, was of the opinion that Saddam was a sort of Hitler figure and had to be defeated, otherwise he would have taken over the world with his marching legions. I don't... Uh, I, I exaggerate slightly. But yeah. Fundamentally, the, the, the portrayal of foreign leaders of despotic countries as new Hitlers or new Mussolinis or, or, or whatever it happens to be is what they always do. And if, if you object to this, then you're told that you're an appeaser mm. and that you're a defeatist and that you're exposing the country to danger. In the the last occasion on which this fell apart was Iraq, which mm. it, I think still most people do understand was a serious mistake. But subsequent catastrophes of the same kind, notably the Libyan one, uh, the, the culprit of that, David Cameron, still lives completely untapped. People are much more worried about his, his uh, activities with Greensill mm. And they are about the fact that uh, he and President Sarkozy engaged in this mad adventure, uh, which did limitless damage both to Libya and the rest of the world. Right. It, it, and it's not, never even examined. And sooner or later, I think it will probably it will probably come about with the kind of people we now have running so much of our media and our, our universities, uh, that the Iraq war will, will, will quietly turn out to be a success as well. well. Yes. And of course, both of those incidents, both Iraq and Libya, uh, we're still feeling the, the, the effects from, you know, the reverberations of the people leaving those countries to come here on dinghies, eventually from from, Paris, from Calais, uh, is still happening. Oh, yes. And it will go on for many, many years to come. The whole crisis in Europe, remember, when huge numbers of people were literally walking in, in enormous crowds across the continent. Yes. 
That was the result of both of our Libyan and our Syrian adventures. And it's unstoppable now. The It's now clear to people in, in sub-Saharan Africa that if they can get to the Mediterranean and pay people smugglers enough, they can get across. And also people coming from the Middle East, they, once they can get past Turkey, they can get in, into Europe. It's completely changed the demography and politics of the European continent. And I suspect it's irreversible. And we have our own small branch of it, which is the discovery by many people that it's really extraordinarily easy to get, get across the English Channel, mm, yes. uh, which, which it is. And that is, that is now we, we simply do not have, because uh, it used to be a strong psychological protection. People used to think it was more or less mm. uncrossable, except on, except on especially calm days. Now that psychological barrier has gone, people realize they can cross it. And we have a border almost as porous as those of our continental neighbours. Yes, and I was reading, I think, yesterday that 2,000 people thus far this year alone have come uh, on that by that method, and all of them are here. Uh, they haven't been sent back. They haven't been uh, detained in any way. Uh, and in fact, quite the reverse. They're helped out of the, the dinghies uh, and, and brought on shore. I mean, and you know, and whatever, whatever the rights and wrongs of it may be and whatever desperation these people may suffer, you know, it's not right. Well, I, that's just they're also immediately presented with personal face masks by the authorities. <laughs> well, quite. <laughs> talking of uh, talking no, of, uh, we have no we have no mechanism uh, that, that that can actually return people to their countries of origin. No, and, and people are aware of this, and the people smugglers take full advantage of it. Yeah, Very and people way. and people say to me all the time, "Why do you not cover it?" And I say, "Well, we do cover it from time to time, but eventually, you can't just keep saying the same thing, which is basically that Priti Patel has promised to make a difference to uh, the way this works, but she's incapable of doing that." and isn't uh, going to do anything about it, really. So the fact that she keeps saying she's going to is is literally of no consequence. And we've now got to a point, rather like we have with Boris Johnson, where I'm not sure people believe anything that they say. Well, they, I think there was, a, there was certainly a strong tendency in the Cameron years for the, for the government to make promises about reducing levels of, of, of migration to this country, which it must have known it couldn't keep. Uh, I, I think that uh, there's been some rhetoric from Priti Patel, but I think the, the current government knows perfectly well that it's, it's offering a hostage to fortune, it's the kind of thing that David Cameron used to say. I think they've more or less grasped that it's something they have no real control over. Mm. No, I think that's right. And you said this weekend in your column that you didn't really care uh, about the story regarding Boris Johnson's soft furnishings, uh, crude and, and rather vulgar as they are. Um, and I understand your point. My point about it has been that, yes, it's a ridiculously trivial story and it shouldn't be important. But he himself has made it important by concealing information that we are entitled to have, surely. Well, I suppose so. But it, it, it... Newspapers and, and, and broadcast organisations fill up with stuff which is unimportant, while they ignore stuff which is important. I'll give you a couple of examples mm. this, this past week. One of them is the extraordinary report into the, the jaunty bravery, uh, the young man who yes. threw a child from the top of the Tate Modern. Now, I recommend anybody to read this report, which you, you, can, you can get on the internet, Serious Case Review. Uh, because it's an extraordinary story of this this person doing so many terrible things over and over and over again, yet ending up at liberty uh, to go out and do this. Uh, 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 imagine being uh, being the family afflicted by the action which she undertook. Uh, why is such a person at liberty in the first place? Right. There's no serious addressing. There ought, in my view, to be a national debate about this. Also, why, what was wrong with him? 
uh, why was he in this state? Now, the mm. report refers to uh, medication which he was taking. Now, I, I'm not drawing any conclusions here. I'm merely making a statement. Uh, but there have been many cases in the United States of, uh, of horrible events where the person involved in mass shootings and similar things, yeah. where the person involved has turned out to have been taking legal psychotropic medications and as a result, there's a growing feeling, there's a correlation between the two. There are, there are doctors such as the interesting Dr. Peter Bregin, uh, who argue that something needs to be done to see whether the, there is some connection mm. between what people have been taking and what they've done. When I inquired, what was the medication? I went to the proper people to do this. What was the medication which uh, bravery was taking? No one would tell me. I saw this patient confidentiality. I said, surely, if you chuck... And the, this person has, has been convicted of this. Yeah. No argument, but if you chuck a, a, a child over, over the top of a high building with likelihood that the child will die and mm. the certainty will be seriously injured, it seems to me you forfeit medical confidentiality. Well, you would think so. But things become more important. But no, absolutely flat. No, right. we're not telling you. We're not saying. And also, I, I always ask because actually individual... Uh, Individual insanity is quite rare. Madness of crowds is quite common. But one has to ask, what was the reason? Mm. And in, there are many, many cases. And there's a very interesting website, which I refer people to, called uh, called, called um, um, Cannabis... Uh, it, sorry, I can't remember. The, the um, kill, um, Attacker Smoked Cannabis. Okay. Um, which is uh, which has been compiled by, a, by, by an acquaintance of mine, and which goes, goes into the hundreds, possibly thousands of criminal cases reported uh, only in local newspapers now of people who've committed attack or smoke cannabis, of people who've committed serious uh, violent crimes uh, and are used as a cannabis. Now, this may be a completely irrelevant connection or a correlation of significance, but it seems to me that it's one that needs to be investigated. I can't find out in many cases when I ask the police and the authorities whether people who've engaged in completely irrational acts of serious violence uh, have have actually been uh, either taking cannabis mm. or have been taking powerful psychotropic medicines. It's something this country will not discuss. That's much more important, it seems to me, yes. uh, than whether someone called Lulu has has, 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 has put silly wallpaper yeah. in. Yeah, but is this, is this the... But the... These, these, these show business, soap opera types of political coverage take up so much time yeah. and waste so much time. And here's a simple point. I have no sympathy with, with, um, with most politicians. They're mostly useless. And anybody who's listened to me or, or read what I say here knows that I have no sympathy with Johnson at all. I think he's a terrible prime minister and I, and I don't want to make out his case. But really and truly, it's the, the prime minister of this country it, it, it might one day be a decent person uh, with a young family. Uh, and the security people will say to him or her, uh, you can't you, you, you can't live at home anymore. You've got mm. to move yourself and your own family into this, into this flat because we can't protect you outside. It, I mean, it's not unreasonable to, to suggest that the people who are compelled to live in this strange place at least have some control over what it's like and it's reasonably pleasant and comfortable. I think the, the public purse can afford that kind of thing. And it really isn't a big political issue. It shouldn't be an issue between parties. It shouldn't dominate newspapers or an election campaign. If you want to worry about it, fine, but it just isn't as important. Mm. Anything like as important. Now, as the issue we were discussing earlier of, of uncontrolled illegal immigration run by people smugglers or the, the, the problems of, of, of people on our streets who are 
capable of terrible acts of violence about whom nothing is being done. Mm. These are huge. And also, frankly, if it's housing you're worried about, what about housing benefit? It costs as much as the Royal Air Force every mm. year. Yeah. And, 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 it, and, and, all, and all it really does is it enrich housing. a lot of a lot of private landlords who get paid by the government to house people uh, at rather well, expensive rates. It's a, it's a disastrous right. attempt to, to cope with the, the needs of people for housing. And it, it raises the question, did we make, as I believe we did, a terrible mistake by getting rid of council housing? Mm. I mean, was it no, I think we did. I don't think, I don't think I there's think any, anyone in this country that, that, that doesn't agree with you on that, because clearly to sell off council housing was OK as an idea, but only if you replaced it uh, with a similar amount of housing for people who required it, which obviously which we, they haven't done. Well, which we didn't. And also you launched into the economy a huge amount of money uh, chasing housing, which mm. was one of the reasons why the, the price of houses has been subject to a far higher level of inflation than practically anything else. Mm. It's, it's, it was much praised, little discussed, and in my view, a mistake. Far more important than the, the, yes. the wallpaper and the sofas in Downing Street. Yet very, very strong. When I worked at the House of Commons back in the 1980s, I suddenly realised after a couple of years of this, I had almost no idea what Parliament had been doing all this time. We'd been engaged so much in, in, in political gossip, who's up, who's down, yeah. who's in, who's out, yeah. leak this, leak that, that we'd forgotten to notice what was actually being done by the government. Sometimes I come across acts of Parliament which went through while I was working there. I didn't even know about them. Mm. Yeah, but I think, but I think you're right. I think the, the political th- coverage is all skewed in the wrong way. Yeah, I think that's true. But perhaps it's re- the, the reason for that is because what the government's been rather good at, not least by int- introducing the Freedom of Information Act, which is uh, working in the completely opposite direction of freedom of information, uh, is that when you try and get answers, as you have on the the John C. Bravery story, you get no answer. Therefore, there's no story, and therefore they've kept that part of the uh, uh, of, of of the world secret, really. It's not quite true. Even without the answer, there's a story. I mean, this was in the Daily Mail last week about the bravery case. Yeah. You see it. But mm. um, no, why, why is no one to blame? Yeah. There's a full page full of absolutely incredible... Are you just read it as if your jaw just drops mm. over and over again. Yeah. Why is this happening? But, you know, page 15 is a good show in a, in a powerful newspaper. But, but I, I don't recall hearing much about it anywhere else. Mm. Uh, it's a national scandal. It's just it's just, it's our scale of, of, of importance that I, I, mm. I can't work out. Yeah, it just I, people accuse me of sucking up to Johnson because of because of what I no. said. It's absolute rubbish. Right. I, I continue to criticise him politically as much as I possibly can, but I just think the, the both the media and the public uh, should really try much harder. To, to hold the government to account on the things which really matter. Yeah. And this wallpaper stuff just isn't it. Well, the thing is, I would differ slightly with you on that. I mean, there are lots of people who tell me every single time I talk about it, it's rubbish, you shouldn't be talking about it, it's not a story. The reason I think it's a story is not so much because of what he spent, not so much of the fact that, that he did have £60,000 of, of, of our money to spend, but apparently that wasn't enough, so they had to borrow some more uh, to make sure that they could get a £6,000 lamp, which looks pretty hideous to me, but that seems to be what they want. Um, the fact remains to me that, you know, if he thinks that he doesn't have to tell us who gave him the money, if he's that arrogant uh, and it could end up being somebody uh, who shouldn't have given him the money, albeit that he's now paid it back, he's making it a story by refusing to say. And I think he doesn't have that right. And I think that's what's interesting about it. All that is true. Uh, but again, it's scale. About, and, and here's the thing. If you look into the, the, the finances of one Winston Spencer Churchill uh, active in politics mm. in the 
the, the who was also the, continually broke, I understand. And he was constantly broken and, and uh, accepting all kinds of help from from donors who I think most of us would regard now as pretty dodgy. Mm. How much does this matter? If he'd been destroyed, if Winston Churchill had been destroyed uh, by such a scandal in, say, 1926 and had been biffed out of politics and never seen again, who else would have been there in 1940 mm. to say, no, we mustn't make peace with Hitler? Uh, is this really our scale of values? Yeah. Do we really mean it? Is it the thing we should be pursuing? Is it the quality? I, 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 Johnson is not Churchill. You may think he is. He's yeah. absolutely not. But... Is this the right way of pursuing the, the, the coverage of politics? Does it really illuminate? I've done an awful lot of scandal. I look back on a lot of it, I think, what, what was I doing there? Mm. Pursuing David Blunkett over this and Peter Mandelson over that. What, wh why, did I, wh why did I do that? What good did it do? Mm. And so much of my time in Washington was spent on, on Bill Clinton's ridiculous sexual scandals. Yes. Well, they were ridiculous, and, he, and, and a lot of what he did was extremely, uh, ex extremely unpleasant. But it wasn't the point. Mm. The point about his government was much more that he was pretty much handing the country over to China. Yes. And hardly anybody noticed that at the time. Right. Yeah, uh, it, I mean, it's, 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 enough to make, it's enough to make a conspiracy theorist blush. But there we are. Listen, um, I'm afraid we're out of time, Peter. Fascinating, though. We should pick this up again next week because there's much to be said about it. And I wonder if even by then uh, the people pursuing Boris Johnson will still be pursuing him over the same stuff because he can't go on forever. Peter Hitchens, Man on Sunday columnist there, uh, back with us next Monday, of course, which won't be a bank holiday, uh, but it'll make no difference to us. This is Talk Radio. leaders, CEOs, mm. tourism ministers, right. and it was safely done, very safely done, testing okay. every day, um, all very safe indeed. Right. And, uh, and one of the things that always struck me about flying into Mexico was it could take quite a long time to get through their immigration. How was it over at that end? It was seamless, was uh, it? literally off the British Airways flight. Uh, they had tip to BA, their staff were superb, um, then arrived at Cancun airport, uh, temperature checked, um, straight through to the immigration hall, straight through there, literally through in a couple of minutes. They checked uh, the forms, the passport, then to the baggage hall. And as every bag came off the carousel, um, some of the staff there were cleaning every bag, 
uh, disinfecting every bag, mm. wiping them down right. and then handing them over. So very seamless, very easy. And that's an airport where there are a lot of people still traveling through, especially Americans, yes. because lots of Americans who are fully jabbed are on the march. They're right. traveling as normal. Well, I would imagine as well, an awful lot of Americans wouldn't have stopped traveling anyway, because uh, there was seemingly not quite as many restrictions on some U.S. states as there ever were here. That's right. And they, they don't uh, have such restrictions. They're freer to move around. Uh, and talking to a lot of the American business and leisure tourists there, um, they're very happy. They're jabbed up. They feel safe. They feel confident. They're moving around as much as they can. So a very different yeah. mood and, and feeling over there and is compared there, with the mood here. Yeah. And is there any requirement to get into Mexico? I mean, obviously, you were on business, so that might have been different. But I mean, is, is there a requirement for you to have had a negative test or have you had to have show a vaccine? Passport nothing. Or anything? Nothing at all. No. Uh, straight through. Didn't need to show a PCR test before arriving and on arrival. Um, admittedly, Mexico does have pretty high infection rates um, because obviously it's close to South America and to Brazil mm. where there's there's been the variant. But um, most of those high infection rates are actually in the big cities like Mexico City. And yeah. I was in Cancun right. where the rates are much lower. Yes. And so mask wearing on the plane, presumably? Mask wearing on the plane. So one of the biggest fears, I guess, was leaving the UK. Yeah. Um, the police were out in force at Gatwick Airport, armed police officers asking you why you're leaving the country. You obviously have to fill out a permission to travel form at the right. moment, although that will disappear on the 17th of May, I'm pleased to say. Yes. Um, and then straight through onto the plane, mask wearing throughout. And, uh, you know, that is frustrating, obviously, on a 10-hour flight. Yeah, that would. Uh, I mean, that would that would time. pretty much stop me going on a ten-hour flight. I mean, I'm 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 looking mm. forward to the day I can go to New York to go and see my my family. But you know, the idea of wearing a mask for that length of time does not fill me with joy. I have to say. No, it's frustrating, and obviously you can take it off when you drink or when you eat. But uh, throughout the flight, the staff, the crew on board were obviously saying, "Please do wear your mask." Right. Um, for the safety of everybody on board. And that's going to be interesting to see how long that rule will stay in place, even right. as borders open up more. Right. But yeah, once once got to Mexico, it was very easy. And also, unless you're in club class, um, I've found, they're not that attentive anymore on uh, on planes, you know, the way they used to be, where they would basically load you up every time you put your hand up, they come and bring you another drink. They don't like doing that anymore. Well, the crew were brilliant uh, in both directions, I have to say. And I think the crew were happy to be flying again, to mm. be honest. And mm. at the moment, the Cancun service is once a week on BA, whereas right. before the pandemic, it used to be daily. Right. But of course, there are fewer people flying. So therefore, the crew on board do have more time to look after you um, and look after us. They did very well. OK, so was your plane pretty empty then going and coming back? I would say about 60% uh, full in okay. both directions. Uh, quite a lot of people traveling who were Mexican, mm -hmm. obviously going back to their country, perhaps from the UK. Um, quite a few who were on business. To be honest, I reckon there were a few holidaymakers on board, judging by the. I was going to uh, say, I mean, you wearing, know, Cancun's so. not a place most of us do business in. Well, it's a big summit city, a lot of uh, conferences and summits, but undoubtedly there were people on board who were somehow going for a holiday yeah. and I mean, how, they, how they got past the Gatwick please. Well, I, I was going to say, that's the thing that puzzles me slightly because, I mean, I'm sorry to be so specific here, but when you fill out this form in front of an armed police officer, what is it that they're mm. asking you for? I mean, do you have to prove you're going somewhere or can you just say you're going somewhere? 
Well, I have to say, you feel a bit guilty because they're saying to you, why are you traveling? Why are you leaving the country? And obviously I had right. a very good work reason to be going. Um, but but you wonder how some people got past them. Mm. Yes, you you actually have to show your form at the check-in, the right. airline check-in. So right. they check you've got you've got the form but is filled it, is out it, but this and is then a the police check but, it again. But, but this is a form that you filled out. It's not like a, a permission to travel from an organization or from, say, um, somebody that you're working for. That's right. But you should have a letter. Certainly, if you're traveling for business, you should have a letter from your employer or for the, the reason you're going, mm. a valid reason. Um, so if you haven't got one of those, it certainly raises suspicions. But I suspect the police are not there checking 24-7. Mm. I suspect there are times when people can get through without any check whatsoever. Right, OK. And on your return, um, we've heard of various problems at Heathrow getting through um, immigration because they're not using the automatic mm. gates. What's, what's Gatwick like? Gatwick this morning uh, was very easy. Um, I, I tweeted a picture, which I think you're showing mm. uh, for those watching online, that, that very much shows it was empty. Mm. Uh, it literally took 60 seconds to get through immigration. They were very polite. They checked all the forms um, and then straight through to the baggage hall and get your bags. And I would say I was out of there probably half an hour earlier than I predicted it would have, it would okay. have been. And, so and uh, very, is, very simple. And what is Mexico classed as when you're coming back in? Is, is there a traffic light system in place yet? Well, technically, it is amber, which means um, I've now got to self-isolate for 10 days or test to release after um, five or six days or so. Right. So, yes, I'm now self-isolating and going through that process. Uh, it's really important to do that. So, but so I think when the traffic that- lights are... So how long, how later long, this week yes. it will be amber. Yeah, well, we'll get to that in a second. How long mm. do you have to stay in for and do you have to take a test? Did you have to book a test when you came before you came back? So I think this is one of the frustrations, Mike, that you, you've hit on for many travellers, yeah. that the the preparation you need to do to come back is pretty exhaustive. Mm. You've got to take a PCR test and do that within 72 hours of returning. Right. You have to fill out a passenger locator form with lots of details about where you're self-isolating yeah. and prove that you have booked your tests. Uh, I have to take tests on day two and day eight. Okay. And then if I want to release early, I have to take a test as well on day five. And these are tests uh, that All you of do... that costs money. Yeah, and these are tests that you do at home, right? That's right. And then you send them off for proper checking in a lab and then they they uh, test, they check them and then you get the results back within 24 hours or so. Um, and it's pretty expensive. I mean, if you want to just do the two tests, day two and day eight, as part of your 10 day self-isolation, that in itself can be around 200 to 250 pounds. Right. And then if you do the test to release as well, you're talking about 300 pounds. Yeah. It's a very expensive exercise and it would put a lot of people off, I'm afraid to say. Well, well not only that, but if you're a family of four, um, it's, mm. it's, 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 it's almost um, impossible to cover that kind of cost uh, unless you're yeah. reasonably well off. An ordinary family of four who are paying, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 pounds for a week away somewhere are going to have to spend another 1,000 quid on the testing yes they are i mean it depends of course how eager you are to travel um there are lots of people who want to go and see family see parents they haven't seen for a year see fiancés etc so there are people who are prepared to pay that but obviously for the mass market typical holiday maker it's very expensive and this is why the system has to change and hopefully will change mm. once the government gives some clarity on how the summer's going to pan out. Yeah, because the difficulty for a lot of people, and, and I'm one of them, is is without knowing what's, what's, what's in store when you return, you can't really guarantee that you can go away. And my problem, obviously, is I don't want to come back and have to quarantine. But until such time as I know that for sure, um, we can't book anything because there's a difference between booking for three and booking for four. 
Mm, this is what's holding up recovery in the travel sector yeah. as a whole. A lot of people are not booking because they're waiting for that traffic light system to be unveiled later this week. Right. And to be honest, the more countries are on the green list, obviously the better for the sector because a lot more people will travel mm. knowing there are fewer hurdles to jump once they come back to the UK. Albeit they will still have to do a PCR test in the early phases. Yeah. Uh, and that might put some people off, sadly. But I think there are enough people, especially you know if they're traveling alone or going with friends, who will pay 45 to £60 pounds for a PCR test. Okay. So what are you expecting on Thursday then? Well, it's a bit of a crystal ball, but uh, in essence, what we do know is um, there could be up to 20 or 25 destinations which are labelled green in the first phase from the 17th of May. I'm pretty confident we'll see the likes of Malta, Israel, um, possibly Portugal, Gibraltar and some Caribbean islands on the list, as well as uh, British overseas territories like Cayman Islands, Turks and Caicos, Bermuda, places like that. So I think there'll be a small number, maybe, as I say, around 20 to 25 countries. That'll be a first phase. Government will see how it goes. And then I believe they'll open up most of Europe to green, the green category during June, enabling people to travel. But but most of Europe will start off amber. Mm. And as you say, that will put a lot of people off because they won't want to self-isolate for 10 days when they come back. No, I think that is the problem because effectively you're having to book, you know, weeks off work, which a lot of, I mean, I don't know how Mm. employers are going to look upon it. I can't imagine they're going to be too too friendly if they're, because a lot of employers are also saying, well, we haven't really had you in an office for such a long time. We don't really want you away again, you know. And especially as Britain is opening up itself, we're seeing restrictions ease from the 17th of May in terms of eating in restaurants, for example, uh, meeting up in a group of six, uh, certainly from June the 21st, possibly very few restrictions. So you're right. I think employers are going to be saying, well, hang on a moment. Mm. I don't want you necessarily being at home for 10 days when the restrictions are easing. Um, And that's why we've got to see the government give that clarity, widen the, the green system as much as possible. It's understandable there will still be some red and there'll still be some amber because there are some countries which are in a worse position, obviously, than we are. But in the May, we should see most of Europe go green, I think, by the end of June and the USA as well. Yes. Um, And what's the actual, I mean, again, for very selfish purposes, what's the entry of a requirement to go to the US at the moment? Well, at the moment, you still have to quarantine if you're coming in from Britain. Um, I'm trying to remember, but I think it's 10 to 14 days still you have to Mm. quarantine for coming in from the UK. And obviously, you have to um, show a negative test on arrival and then do another negative test during that quarantine period to come out of quarantine. So still pretty extensive. That may depend on which state you're going to, I suppose. Yes, different states have have different rules, but um, you can guarantee that uh, you're going to have to do at least one PCR test of some kind. Now, that is changing. and And I think, as I say, you're starting to see many Americans travel. What we need to see is something called reciprocity. Yes. So we need to see the Americans open up a corridor, if you like, to the UK Mm. and vice versa. And I'm confident you're going to see that um, certainly by the time President Biden visits the UK for the G7 in June, if not before. Yes, because, I mean, we keep being told that May 17, albeit is a kind of arbitrary date at which we may be able to start going places. But Mm. but all of the kind of the mood music coming from the government is you shouldn't really go anywhere and probably until after June the 21st. And I see that the all-party parliamentary group uh, on the coronavirus has said that the government should discourage all international le- leisure travel, basically, which is not very helpful to you guys. 
no, it's not helpful at all. And I, I actually think they're slightly out of touch. I mean, as I say, just talking about no Gatwick way, we were, surely not. It was, Paul, heaven's surely, sake. surely not MPs out of no. touch. Now there's a thing. Um, but Gatwick, as I say, this morning was was uh, very easy to get through. And admittedly, there are fewer flights at the moment, but it was seamless and Border Force were doing a very good job to give them credit. Um, now, clearly, as more people travel after May the 17th and the numbers do increase coming in, then yes, this has to be looked at in terms of how we get into the country. But that's why the government needs to invest in digital certificates to make it seamless, cheap or free, open those e-gates again so that everything's not being checked manually. Mm. Uh, and this is what the government is working on at the moment, and I'm confident they'll make an announcement about it by the end of this week. OK. And you seem to be quite confident as well, Paul, and I trust your judgment on these things because I know that you talk to the right Thank people. You. Um, you seem to be quite confident that the testing regime may kind of ev- evaporate effectively at some point. Well, I think it all depends, obviously, on the data and the variants hopefully disappearing Mm. as more people are vaccinated safely. Uh, So it's understandable the government is going to want to phase in these changes. But yes, I think we'll see a move towards more lateral flow testing rather than PCR testing, which is expensive, as we've said, uh, if you're coming from a green country. Um, As I say, I think red and amber will still see an element of testing for several months yet. Mm. But hopefully, as more countries are fully vaccinated and that and that rollout is you know starting to have an impact now then we will see testing slowly disappear mm. um over the next year and that's important to right. people moving again and what about pricing of holidays and stuff because some of the things that people have have been slightly concerned about is that if you're only going, going to be given say seven days notice on a particular you know travel opportunity if you like because suddenly a country gets given a green light um are the travel companies going to be reasonable about it, do you think, or are they going to just absolutely, you know, gouge the hell out of us? Well, prices have been rising for this year, um, understandably, as companies try to claw back the huge losses that they've been making. And profit isn't really a word the travel sector is even talking about at the moment. They're just trying to break even and, and stay afloat in most cases. Uh, 40% of staff in the travel and tourism sector is still on furlough, Mike, yeah. in this country. So it's a huge uh, impact on the sector. Well, I mean, a lot of hotels and things are still, sh- are still shut, aren't they? Yes. Uh, some are reopening, of course, on May the 17th, which is great news. So they're starting to bring back their staff around that time. But, uh, you know, let's hope they can have a very successful summer. I think you'll um, you'll see prices continuing to rise uh, simply because people are spending again. The demand is high and that will push up prices, uh, flight prices by some 10 percent or so. Hotel prices by between five and 15 percent. So, yes, it is going to be more costly to travel. But I think the demand is there, not just for staycationing and and having a nice holiday in the UK in this amazing weather but uh, also um, going abroad and and benefiting there. There isn't enough supply in the UK for the demand of people staying in the UK for holidays. Right. And as far as the actual cost of the testing, I've got a tweet here from somebody saying, why is it we have to pay uh, for these tests when you come back from a country when, as a normal course of events, the government the other day or two weeks ago was saying, get yourself a a test, uh, just keep testing yourself just for the sake of it, and that's all free. It's very interesting you say that, actually, because there were a couple of people checking in ahead of me in in Cancun Airport yesterday um, who didn't have the right test. They used the NHS lateral flow test, which they're not allowed to do, as their test. Mm. And so they were barred from boarding the flight because they didn't have the right test. You have to take a PCR test and pay for it. It's a very good question about why you should pay when you come back. But the government, of course, would say, we're not forcing you to travel. 
Right. Uh, if anything, we're trying to restrict the amount of travelling done, and therefore you should pay for it if you if you do travel so and come they, back so to the I country. Guess, so I guess they see it as a kind of a disincentive, if you like. Correct. That's yeah. exactly it. And and there are those in cabinet um, and in the NHS, understandably, who feel more people should be staying at home and not travelling. Mm. It's a fierce debate going on in the cabinet at the moment between the likes of uh, the Treasury and the Department of Transport versus the uh, Department of Health and chief medical officers team mm. um it's a it's a bitter debate about how much travel should be allowed because that's the other question as well finally paul i know you've probably strapped for time um there's going to be a foreign office list i understand in addition to whatever the traffic light list system is with the department of transport how's that going to work Mike, I have all the time in the world. I'm self-isolating for up to 10 days. <laughs> oh, I'll keep you on all day then, don't worry. I'm, I'm not going anywhere, I can tell you. Okay. Um, in terms of the uh, the Foreign Office, this is one of the gripes and the bugbears that the travel sector has faced in, over the last year. The fact that effectively there's been a non-essential travel ban by the Foreign Office. Mm. Um, it has been slightly relaxed with some countries, but in the main, it's a ban on travel overseas that now needs to be aligned with these traffic lights so we do need to see both of those opening up travel later this week um, and that would be good news if the foreign office turns around and says that we're going to align our travel advice to the traffic light system mm. that will then mean your insurance would cover you in the main should there be a problem if the flight doesn't go or your your holidays cancelled for example yeah, because insurance is an issue, isn't it, uh, at the moment? Mm. I suppose if you are trying to get travel insurance, it's proving a bit more difficult than normal. Yeah, I think overall taking a trip, whether it's for business, whether it's to see family, whether it is for a holiday, it's more complicated post-pandemic or, or towards the end game, if you like, hopefully, of this pandemic. You have to do your research. You really have to do a lot of work. And so that's why many people feel that uh, mass market holidays will be lower in volume this year there'll be fewer of them because a lot of people would just say i can't be bothered there are too many hurdles to jump and i'll stay in the uk and go and stay in a hotel or a cottage here yeah um it's understandable and that's why there's a lot of work that needs to be done not just from government but also from the travel sector to make traveling more seamless uh, and bring back that confidence and reassurance yes. and and that normality as well paul great to talk to you thank you very mm. much enjoy uh, your isolation paul charles chief executive of the pc agency travel consultancy firm of course uh, traveling's all very well um, but then you have to pay the price when you get back so you know self-isolation uh, taking tests paying for those tests as well which doesn't come cheap uh, unless your company is doing it for you um, a couple of you have uh, sent me tweets saying that you've been traveling as well people have been uh, because as we were hearing the other week if you're at Heath throwing you're waiting five hours in the queue who are you standing behind there must be an awful lot of people there surely the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio now the papers today full of uh, a bunch of stuff including obviously what happened last night uh, on line of duty the end of the show the finale uh, but lots and lots of coverage as well of what went on uh, up in liverpool because there was a great um, nightclub uh, scene going on with about two or three thousand people in it um, that was shot over the weekend we also had uh, a music festival as well we're going to talk now to professor ian buck and dean of the institute of population health and the university uh, of Liverpool. He was involved in it. Let's see how it went. Professor, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, and my understanding is, and from the pictures that I've seen, everybody had a great time. I saw no masks being worn in the disco, as it was known, or the club, um, but there were some masks being worn at the music festival. How did it all go? It, it went incredibly well. 11,500 people over the last five days from Liverpool City region have attended a business festival, two nightclubs, 
and a, a music festival yesterday in Sefton Park. This is all part of the events research program. So everyone got tested before the event. Uh, rates are very low at the moment, mm. so it's a good time to build that safety net. Right. Importantly, it's not just the testing and the public health services. People have to declare if they have any symptoms. So good citizenship builds this safety net as well as good organisation yes. and good public health services. Yeah, quite. And, and presumably as well, most of the people certainly in the club uh, were young, so they probably wouldn't have been vaccinated. Um, have you got different sort of studies going on where you're doing with people who are vaccinated as well? We have a, a variety of events across the country. They're very concentrated in Liverpool to be realistic. So mm. indoor, outdoor, large, small, younger, older. Um, the deliberate section to cross-section to, to get something realistic. We want to produce evidence by the end of May to inform the wider reopening of this sector, right. but with, with a safety shield that will work between local public health services and the event organisers. Right. And as far as uh, what we now know about this virus compared to, say, last year, there's an awful lot now that we know, isn't there, in terms of how it spreads, you know, who's likely to, 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 to get it, who's likely to be affected more badly by it. Yes, so we deliberately chose very airy venues. Good ventilation, tents without sides, warehouses. We want as much air circulation between people as possible. We also use little cameras in the events to look at the movement of crowds. Could we lay out those events set differently to avoid bottlenecks? Yeah. Um, so airiness and spacing between people, but keeping it natural. The Dutch tried nightclubs with mask wearing, uh, and it was hopeless. Yeah. They, People wouldn't wear masks. It's not realistic. Right. We had to do something that was realistic. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Because, I mean, as time goes on and as people either become sort of more used to the idea of wearing a mask, um, there are still certain situations where they'll never be used to wearing one, will they? Exactly. Um, you, have to, you have to go with the natural flow of that situation. Mm. The sector has been closed for a long time, yeah. so it had to open in a sustainable way. We were asked to do some events without alcohol, which also wasn't realistic because those events wouldn't make enough money to stay open right. without alcohol. Mm. Um, so we designed this at a time when background infection rates are about one in a thousand. Mm. Testing beforehand identifies probably north of eight out of ten likely infectious individuals. So the chance of someone actually having the virus in an event and being able to pass it on was maybe one in 5,000. So okay. they were very, very low. Um, these are very careful public health decisions that are made uh, for that community and with that community at the mm. time. Right. So that's good then, isn't it? Because if you had, say, 3,000 people in a club and it's one in 5,000 chance, it's a pretty good chance that nobody's going to get it. Yes, that, that's, that's our aim. And, and so, I mean, obviously, lots of people in the nighttime economy are watching this experiment uh, with some um, uh, enthusiasm, shall we say, um, because while many people are not that keen on the idea of, uh, of a vaccine passport as such, this is a different way of doing it, isn't it? Very much so. We tried different ways of linking ticketing and testing. People had to uh, jump through some hoops to, to get to these events. Yeah. But there was such hunger for them to return that people were prepared to go to testing centres to answer questions, to show their negative test results, uh, to respond to further questions about have you got any symptoms? And now we're asking people to send a follow-up test at home. 
um, the response has, has been very good to that. Right. So this builds a, a much broader safety net around those events. Uh-huh. And what's the time lag that you have to look at in terms of how soon after um, you would say, for example, if somebody took a test three weeks down the road, um, it might be that they didn't get COVID there. They got it somewhere else. Yeah, we're taking a test five days after the event, Yeah, which okay. is on average the time uh, to catch a virus. Of course, someone may have caught a virus beforehand, but uh, not have come up on the test. Yeah. As I said, the background rates are very low. So this is the time to work out uh, what the realistic situation is. Yeah. Have we really put the relevant net in place? And we're also in contact with these people. So it's like having a contact tracing service. Yeah pre-done because you are all going to an event you have given your phone number additionally with the events research program people have consented to be part of finding out more yes Uh, so the regular contact is is ramped up we may need to ramp up regular contact further in the future if event if rates were say to rise in july um different approaches may need to be taken but Mm. Um, how it's gone in Liverpool is is a very good relationship actually between the public health teams right. and the event organisers and the crowds. So this is looking positive, but a full report will be made by the end of May. Okay. And would the would the end game be that you can say look to July if July and the rates have not gone up and you've got exactly the same sort of if you like background? Um, would you then think that you could have this kind of activity? without having to test everyone then? Could you could you go that far? Could you say, look, you know, we've, we've got the same kind of conditions as we had back in uh, uh, in, in the first weekend of May, um, so we can now say there's no need for everybody to have a test before they go in? No, absolutely not. We're partway through a vaccination programme and everywhere in the world we are trying hard as public health services to stop the virus evolving to become vaccine resistant. So it's really important that people are tested and communities take all safety precautions that they can whilst opening up parts of society that are really important for Mm. our mental health and our social fabric and our local economies. Right. But in terms of places like the US, for example, where in some states they're having baseball games, in Australia they're having football games and having full attendance in in stadiums, um, I don't believe they're testing everybody before they do that. Rapid tests, rapid antigen tests are, are very low cost. The results come back in 30 minutes. We got thousands of people tested in Liverpool efficiently. It, it worked around the events. I, I would say that that is a good investment in public health safety and in keeping those events open, making people feel more secure yeah. around Oh no! Listen, the, like, no, I, I'm, I'm, drink. I'm not arguing for, for for you to not do it. I'm just saying that eventually, surely, you would want to not have to do it, though. They will reach some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that but, is that that is the end game. And if they are doing it in other parts of the world, because we do hear quite often from the government, you know, we're looking at what other countries are doing and how they're dealing with it. Um, you know, obviously, in parts of America and certainly Australia, they don't think they need to do it. Well, let's complete our vaccination program first and see where we are with the pandemic's journey mm. uh, in a few months' time. And what did you make of the, the snooker? I know that wasn't part of your project, but the snooker was quite well attended um, over the course of the last few days. And I think they had, uh, last night, a full capacity uh, audience, basically, albeit that they were wearing masks. Yes, it, it, there is huge demand across all of society, all age groups, 
different kinds of venues, theatre, sports, and live music. It was it was really quite moving. Yeah. Last. Well, I think I think I'm right in saying one of the DJs burst into tears, didn't she, when she started she started her set and just started weeping. I think many of us did. Yeah. To, if youth is known, uh, a lot of work's gone into creating that possibility. Yeah. And before the bands came on, the crowd started singing. It was an outburst of joy. Good. Uh, it was very moving. Well, I'm glad you haven't taken the, uh, the, the, the the Scottish route, which is that people aren't supposed to sing no matter where they are because it's very dangerous. But uh, it sounds terribly encouraging, Professor. Thank you for joining us. And hopefully we'll be talking to you again soon and uh, you'll have some more good news for us. Ian Buchan there, uh, Professor uh, Dean of the Institute of Population Health at the University of Liverpool, uh, about that big weekend in Liverpool where, you know, at least people could go out uh, and enjoy themselves. Now, you might say to me, yeah, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to go and have a test before I go to a club. I don't want to bother having a test before I go to a football match, go to a snooker match. Well, maybe not. But if this is the way that they're going to get it to that point, then surely uh, it's got to be a step in the right direction, I would suggest. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business. Removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com AI for people to learn more.